You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. All right, well, we are going to take a little detour away from Deuteronomy. And we are going to go to Judges, the book of Judges. And if you're thinking, oh man, not another Old Testament book. It's okay, Judges is probably the most exciting book in the Old Testament. So you can give a round of applause for that. No, I'm thinking of you. Um, in addition to that, I always tell you, um, I don't have the gift of, of teaching in the same way that Pastor Phil does, and so my gift to you and to myself and to everyone is to try to be uh, quick. And so I always aim for about 30 minutes. If I go a little beyond that, my apologies, but we'll, tr- we'll try to get you out of here early at least. So Judges chapter 13, and as you are turning there, I'm huge Okay, I'm huge on context, all right? I'm huge on context. When I go to read the Word myself daily or doing any kind of study or whatever, for me to really grasp what's going on, I have to go back and review the context of what I'm reading. So if I take a random chapter in a random book, I'm not really zoned in on what's going on, so I have to go and I have to read either a book summary or something like that to, to get my mind set to the right context. So I'm going to try to paint a picture of the context that we're going to be in tonight. So everyone here has heard the story of Samson, right? So we're going to be going through Samson tonight. So let me, let me take you to the book or to the chapter where Samson is. So the entire Bible is about God's faithfulness to his people, right? And even when his people are not faithful in return, God keeps his promises. That is one of the great things about um, the God that we serve is because his ability to fulfill his promises aren't reliant on our, our own ability to obey, which is fantastic because I don't know if you're anything like me, but uh, so often I'm left thinking, okay, once again, another week goes by and I did nothing for the Lord or I disobeyed X amount of times, okay? So it's, it can be a very heavy, weighty thing to have to, uh, to have to fulfill the expectation of being perfect. So we don't have to do that with our, with our God. So, so with the book of Judges, remember, God's people were in bondage in Egypt, And so God prompts him, I'm going to take you out of Egypt. So he takes them and leads them out through the wilderness. And he says, I'm taking you to the promised land. Everybody's heard of the promised land, right? I'm taking you to the promised land. So the book of Judges is the beginning of them being in the promised land. So remember, uh, they were led by Moses, but Moses didn't get to go into the promised land. So the guy that followed right after him, Joshua, is the one who led them in. So the book starts basically with Joshua gathering the people around saying, okay, everybody gather around. Okay, God was really good to you, undeservedly so. God was really good to you. So here's what we're going to do. This time, we're actually going to obey the Lord. And we're actually going to read the scripture that he's given us, the commandments that he's given us, right? And he said, we're actually going to obey this time. And the reason we're going to do that is because in a way to show gratitude to God, we are going to set a great example for the world to see. So when the world sees Israel being established, they're going to know, okay, their God is great, and I want to know more about him. So that's the whole purpose of this, is to point fingers towards God and say, okay, he's the one behind this. So, of course, as usual, things don't go according to plan. So the the book of Judges starts with the death of Joshua, basically. And the book of Judges is the time period between coming into the promised land and when God starts establishing kings over the land. So there's, little, there's a little bit of limbo here, a little bit of time. We were like, okay, well, if they're coming in and Joshua dies, what happened to the leadership? It becomes a little bit chaotic, as you'll see. 
So the book of Judges gets its name from the people who led Israel at the time. Now, it wasn't judges like you think of with the little white, you know, the hair, the black robe, the little white curly suit hairs. It wasn't that kind of judge. So if you have that image in your mind of what a judge is, we need to wash that out. And you need to think about a mighty warrior. All right. So Israel wasn't a unified body per se yet. So they were basically divided into little sections of land. And each little section had their own judge. And it was basically a warrior. So when you think of a judge, get rid of the black robe and the white little curly hair. And think of someone along the lines of like Conan the Barbarian. So that's what we're dealing with in the book of Judges. Now, men, if you have not read the book of Judges lately, clear your calendar and starting first thing in the morning, read through the book of Judges. You will not regret it. So the book of Judges can be summed up in this way. There's a verse that's repeated several times in the book of Judges. And this is what I want you to remember. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. So their first instructions in the promised land, as gracious as the Lord was, he brought them in, is that, okay, priority number one, all these evil, idol-worshiping Canaanites that are here, we want you to send them out. It's that simple. We want you to start fresh. We don't want you to intermingle with all these devil worshipers, basically. And, of course, they don't. They're like, oh, well, you know, they're nice people, and maybe if we just, maybe we can save them. And that's the attitude they have. So what do they do? They try to coexist. Now, what does God tell us about marriage? When a man and a wife get married, they become one. And so that's what they try to do with this other nation, the Canaanites. They try to coexist, and they end up becoming one. Now, God has set his people apart for holiness. And when God tries to set his people apart for holiness, and they start intermingling with people that hate God and don't care anything about obeying him, what do you think is going to happen to the holiness of God's people? It's going to come unraveled. And quickly. Now, when God tells us to do something, when he gives us commands, there's one thing you can bet on. It's not just for God. It's not just because God says so. Every time God gives us a command, it's for our own good. All right? I have small children in my house. Anytime I tell my kids what to do, is it for my own good? Maybe sometimes if I tell them to mow. But is it really for my good? No, it's for their own good. We tell them, do not touch that hot stove. Is it really for me? No, it's to help my children. And God is the same way. So when he says, okay, I want you to come in, take the Canaanites, and I want you to scoot them all out, what he's basically saying is, for your good, you'll thank me later, for your good, you need to get rid of them. But they don't. They did what was right in their own eyes, and they did not drive out the Canaanites. So the book of Judges is a downward spiral from beginning to end. And there are six primary judges that that are talked about in the book of Judges. Number one is Othniel, and he comes in and defeats an army. Now, guys, the part I'm talking about where you need to go home and read, it's really starting with chapter 3, and it, it gets really good fast. So Othniel is a mighty warrior. He comes in, and he just slaughters an entire army. All right. Then number two is Ehud, and he is the first ninja in the Bible. He is a left-handed swordsman, and he stabs a fat guy, and he escapes the balcony like a ninja. You'll never forget Ehud now. Then there is Deborah, judge number three. And let's just say this story ends with a tent peg being driven through someone's uh, temple. Number four, Gideon. He is a coward who defeats a giant army with just 300 men. 
And as a way to thank God, he then goes home and murders everyone who did not help in battle. Nice guy. I hope he gets on staff one day. Then there's number five, Jephthah. Now, have you ever seen those movies where there's like this, this old, retired war hero that like lives up in a cabin in the woods, and the government's like, okay, we really need, we need, really need this skilled marksman. So they go and they ask this guy, okay, come, come and go with us on this very secret mission. You're the only one that has the skills to do what we need to do, right? This is Jephthah. Unfortunately... When he gets his victories in battle, he celebrates by going home and uh, sacrifices his daughter to God. And I don't think it's necessary to say this, but God was not a fan of that. And then number six is Samson. And this is where we're going to focus tonight. Samson has no regard for holiness whatsoever. He has faith. He knows God is there. He believes in him. But he has no regard for holiness. He is very promiscuous. He is violent and he is arrogant. And his life ends with mass murder. So that's who we're going to talk about tonight. So turn to chapter 13, Judges 13, and we're going to start in verse 2. The words are up on the screen. If you, we're, going to have, we're going to do lots of reading tonight, so if you want to just keep your eyes on the screen, that's, um, that's probably the thing to do. In those days, a man named Manoah from the tribe of Dan lived in the town of Zorah. His wife was unable to become pregnant, and they had no children. The angel of the Lord appeared to Manoah's wife and said, Even though you have been unable to have children, you will soon become pregnant and give birth to a son. So be careful. You must not drink wine or any other alcoholic drink, nor eat any forbidden food. You will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and his hair must never be cut. For he will be dedicated to God as a Nazarite from birth. He will begin to rescue Israel from the Philistines. So at this time, because the Israelites did not get the Canaanites out of their land, the Israelites began to be ruled by, by other, other countries, right? Other, other people around them. And at this time, it was the Philistines. And the Philistines were absolutely brutal to the Israelites. They were so brutal and evil. And they ruled over them. But something I want to add here is, with the birth of Samson, Samson's name means sunshine, which is really, really funny if you know the story of Samson very well. Uh, I'm sure his parents named him little sunshine, you know, with this, oh, we've got such great joy. We didn't think we we're going to have kids. Now we've got this little bundle of joy. Let's name him little sunshine. And we'll see in a minute that Samson has just a bit of a revenge problem. And uh, perhaps it sends from his mom always saying, Samson, it's time to come home. And all of his friends are like, yeah, okay, sunshine, go home to mommy. You know, this, as a guy, you know, you get to a certain point where someone really has to die. So next I want to talk about what it means to be a Nazarite. So Samson was separated in a special way and called a Nazarite. Well, what Nazarite means is just literally to be separated, to be set apart. So God wanted him to be uh, set apart. So, so becoming a Nazarite, this, this Nazarite vow, was something that you elected to do on your own. It's not something commanded by God. If you wanted to become uh, a Nazarite and, and, become, and take this Nazarite vow... It was basically a period of setting yourself apart, abstaining from some things, and really working on your holiness to really be close to God. And it's something that you elected to do. However, three times in the Bible, people, there were three people in the Bible who took the Nazarite vow uh, from birth, okay, because they were visited by an angel, uh, by the Lord. First one is Samuel. Second is Samson. Anybody want to guess who the third one was? John the Baptist. So two in the Old Testament, one in the New. 
So the three restrictions for Nazarites are, number one, do not touch or go near a dead body. So in the Old Testament law, if you touched a dead body, you were considered unclean and you had to be separated for a while. So number one is do not touch a dead body, a dead carcass, anything. No alcohol, and that includes grape juice, grapes, raisins, and even their seeds. And third is do not cut your hair. Now, you would think that the three, based on uh, the southern culture, would be don't, don't drink. What, what is the saying? Don't drink, smoke, or chew, and don't grow, go with girls that do. You would think that would be based on uh, southern culture, but that's not what we're talking about tonight. So she runs and she tells Manoah about this angel of God that she's talked to. And he says, okay, if he comes again, please let me know because I have some questions to ask him. So finally he comes again, he asks all the questions, and Manoah sacrifices a, a goat to the Lord. And as the flames shot up in the air, the angel of the Lord ascended through the flames, which would be, would be an awesome thing to uh, witness. So in verse 21, we'll pick up there. Manoah finally realized it was the angel of the Lord, and he said to his wife, We will certainly die, for we have seen God. But his wife said, If the Lord were were going to kill us, he wouldn't have accepted our burnt offering and grain offering. He wouldn't have appeared to us and told us this wonderful thing and done these miracles. So when her son was born, she named him Samson, and the Lord blessed him as he grew up. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him. Now, does anyone else see what happens here? So this angel of the Lord comes and delivers this promise. And I'm going to give you a son. Not only that, he's going to grow up and he is going to rescue my people. And Manoah hears this and says, oh no, we've seen God, we're going to die. And his wife has to talk some sense into him. Okay, you couples that are here tonight, how many times has this happened in your marriage? Okay, so after receiving these promises, Manoah's like, oh, we're going to die. His wife's like, okay, let's just settle down here. Um, he's not going to kill us if he just promised us a son and said he was going to rescue us. And of course, Manoah's like, yeah, I guess that's true. So moving on to chapter 14. It says, One day when Samson was in Timnah, one of the Philistine women caught his eye. And when he returned home, he told his father and mother that a young Philistine woman in Timnah caught my eye, and I want to marry her. Get her for me. His father and mother objected. Isn't there even one woman in our tribe or among all the Israelites that you can marry? Why must you go to the pagan Philistines to find a wife? But Samson told his father, Get her for me. She looks good to me. And his father and mother didn't realize that the Lord was actually at work in this, creating an opportunity to work against the Philistines who ruled over Israel at the time. So Samson's parents were actually trying to show a little bit of wisdom here. They knew that marrying someone who was a Philistine that hated God, hated everything that they stood for, could end in some pretty compromising situations. So uh, they were actually really awful people, and they were trying to save him from that. And they also knew their son... They knew that perhaps he was a little sight shorted, uh, short sighted, excuse me, short sighted, and uh, they were trying to protect his holiness for him. Nevertheless, they remembered that God's promises, um, they remembered God's promises that he was going to rescue them, and they kind of they gave him a little slack and let him make his own decisions. Verse 5 As Samson and his parents were going down to Timnah, a young lion suddenly attacked Samson near the vineyards of Timnah. At that moment, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him, and he ripped the lion's jaw apart with his bare hands. He did it as easily as if it were a young goat, but he didn't tell his father or mother about it. When Samson arrived in Timnah, he talked with the woman and was very pleased with her. 
And later, when he returned to Timnah for the wedding, he turned off the path to look at the carcass of the lion. And he found that a swarm of bees had made some honey in the carcass. He scooped up some of the honey in his hands and ate it along the way. He also gave some to his father and his mother, and they ate it. But he didn't tell them that he had taken the honey from the carcass of the lion. Now, why didn't Samson tell his parents where he got the honey? Because he had now officially broken his vow. He was not to touch a dead carcass of any type because he became unclean. And on top of that, he was extra ungrateful and and not really thinking because then he went and gave it to his parents. Now, his parents were Jews, which means that not even his parents were supposed to touch a dead carcass because they were considered unclean. So here they were unclean and they didn't even know it. He's not really being a, a loving guy here. Now, the, the Jewish tradition was so strict that if you, were take, if you had taken the Nazarite vow and even a close family member died, you could not go anywhere near that, that family member. That's a, that's, a pretty, very, that's a pretty serious thing, and, and it's to be taken you know, quite seriously. So not only did he not stay away from the carcass, he ate from it. And on top of that, he gave this unclean honey to his parents to share. So it reminds me when I was growing up, you know, sometimes my mom would be cooking and, you know, she would accidentally drop some food on the ground and she'd say, that's dad's piece. And I always assumed she was joking, but I never technically paid attention to see if it went in the trash or back on the plate. Although, now that I think about it, uh, it may have been her way of just keeping us quiet and not asking questions and ended up back in the pot. But... So here's what we know about Samson touching the deadline. The only reason he touched it was because he saw the sweet honey coming from it. Now, he wasn't supposed to go anywhere near a dead carcass, but he likes to play with fire. So he thought, well, I'm just going to swing by and I'm going to look at it. I'm just going to look and I'm going to see what I do with my bare hands. So probably his arrogance got the best of him there. So he walked over there and he put himself in a compromising situation. And once he was there, then he saw the honey that he wouldn't have seen if he had just avoided it altogether. But then he saw the honey. He's like, I have to have that. And he broke his Nazarite vow. So Samson has officially broken one of the three Nazarite vows to God. Verse 10. As his father was making final arrangements for his marriage, Samson threw a party in Timnah, as was the custom for elite young men. And when the bride's parents saw him, they selected 30 young men from the town to be his companions. Now, in Timnah, there was a gigantic vineyard. Now, remember, he's not supposed to go near vineyards, right? He's not supposed to drink any wine or alcohol or anything like that or even really be near it. So this is pretty much a bachelor party, really a drinking party. Now, it doesn't say for sure that Samson was drinking, but based on the, uh, the habits that we see in his life, chances are he probably did, which would have been number two, broken vow. So two of the three... We're just getting started in the story, and he's already broken them. So now he sees these 30 dudes that were at this, this party with him, and he was once again in a compromising situation. All right? Number one was he went by the dead carcass, and after he disobeyed, then he was tempted with this honey. Right? So now number two, here he is at this vineyard, and technically maybe he hasn't broken his vow yet, but it's put him in a compromising situation. So, of course, these 30 guys that are there with him, they're just completely plastered. They're drunk big time. And he decides he's going to take advantage of them. He's getting married. Hey, this will be a a good time for me to basically rob these guys. 
So he tells them he has a riddle for them. And if they solve it, they will, he will give each one of them a very nice set of clothes. But if they cannot solve it, they each have to give Samson a set of clothes. Now, for you gamblers in the room, that is a 30 to 1 payout. You always take that bet. I'm kidding. Wake up, guys. So these guys take the bet, and unfortunately for Samson, they go to Samson's new wife, and they say, please, just tell us the answer, or we're going to burn your house down, and we're going to put you and your dad in there at the same time. Now, that's a bit of a threat. So, of course, she wants to protect herself. The last thing she wants to have done to her is to be burned alive with her dad in, in his house, right? So to avoid that, she goes and she says, oh, Samson, don't you just really love me? If you did, you'd tell me the answer to the riddle. And Samson said, tell you the answer. Do you know what I've been through? I didn't even tell my parents I did that. I'm not going to tell you. She says, oh, please. Oh, please, just tell me the answer. And Samson says, okay, I'll tell you, but keep it quiet. Now, she takes the answer immediately, and she goes and tells these 30 men. Of course, what happens? They win the bet, and Samson has to pay up. Now, the downside to a 30-to-1 payout, (laughs) poor Samson, is that if you lose, you owe a lot of money. So he, he now owed 30 really nice sets of clothes. Now, Samson being a, a very swell guy, he just opens his wallet and gives them the money for it, right? No. Here's what he does. It says, He went down to the town of Ashkelon, killed 30 men, took their belongings, and gave their clothing to the men who had solved his riddle. But Samson was furious about what had happened, and when he went back to live with his father and mother, and he went back in, to live with his father and mother, so his wife was given in marriage to the man who had been Samson's best man at the wedding. Now, as you can see, Samson has just a bit of a temper problem, but he's just getting started. So Samson eventually goes back to his wife, and he finds out, okay, well, you know, he talks to her dad, and she says, he says, well, I thought you weren't coming back, so you know, I kind of gave it to your best man. And Samson went in a rage. And this was the beginning of the end for Samson. A little switch had been flipped in his mind, and he became so angry for the rest of his life. So as a response, verse 4, it says, Then he went out and he caught 300 foxes. Very impressive, Samson. And he tied their tails together in pairs, and he fastened a torch to each pair of the tails. Then he lit the torches, and he let the foxes run through the grain fields of the Philistines. He burned all of the grain to the ground, including the sheaves and uncut grain. He also destroyed the vineyards and olive groves. So, in an ironic twist, guess who gets the blame for all of this massive destruction that Samson causes? Not Samson. Well, maybe a little bit. But his wife and her dad. So what do the Philistines do? They get angry at her, and guess what? They put her and her dad together in a house, and they burn, they burn it. And it's not funny that they did that. It's just ironic that that's what she was trying to avoid when she sold Samson out, and that was her, her demise eventually. So a quick story. I don't know if you guys have ever really felt like uh, capturing 300 foxes, tying their tails together, and setting flame to them, and sending them on somebody's property. But it happened to me today. So I knew I had to work on my sermon. So I woke up early, and this is what we see in our yard. Yes, exactly. So my immediate thought after studying this is, man, i got to find me some foxes. (laughs) Now, 
What I'm not going to do is I'm not going to tell you, I'm not going to tell you who did it. That is the last thing I would want to do to our pastor's wife. (laughs) But I will tell you, she throws an unbelievable birthday party for her daughter and her friends. So the Philistines went to the men who lived in the land of Judah with Samson. And they said, okay, look what he did to our food supply. You're going to have to hand over Samson. So they go to Samson. They're like, Samson, what are we going to do with you? Now, <laughs> what they don't do is they, go at- they don't go attack him because they know what Samson is capable of. So they go and with their tail tucked between their legs a little bit, they're like, oh, Samson, you're going to get us in trouble. So Samson, being the nice guy that he is, comes up with a plan. He says, I tell you what, why don't you tie me up? And I'm going to let you take me. But you have to make me a promise that no matter what happens, you will not turn on me and you will not kill me. And they're like, okay, what's worse going to happen, right? So it says, they say, we will only tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines. And we won't kill you. So they tied him up with two new ropes and they brought him up from the rock where he was. As Samson arrived at Lehi, the Philistines came shouting in triumph. But the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon Samson, and he snapped the ropes on his arms as if they were burnt strands of flax, and they fell from his wrist. Then he found the jawbone of a recently killed donkey. He picked it up and killed 1,000 Philistines with it. Now, going back to that go-get-em attitude (laughs) that that men have, um, since this story was so fresh on my mind, uh, I decided to take the time to tell my son about this part of the story. And I knew my son is going to be amazed. Okay, he's going to be amazed that somebody can kill even one person with a jawbone, much less a thousand. So I'm getting into the story, and I'm telling him, man, his eyes are on me. And in typical male fashion, and I say, and he killed a thousand men with a jawbone. And he goes, is that all? <laughs> so I guess we all have a little bit of Samson in us, don't we, men? All I can do now is just pray that... <laughs> He'll marry somebody with a little bit more wisdom than he has. So it says, The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon Samson. So this is one of the things I love about God. As I mentioned a while ago, God's promises do not depend on our own obedience or our own abilities. God accomplishes what he does regardless of what we do. Samson did have faith. There's no doubt about that. But he did not make the most of his life because he just could not break away from his sin. Now, just imagine what the Lord uh, may have done with him had he chose the path to be obedient. I mean, we may be talking about Samson being the, the greatest warrior of all time, the smartest person, the greatest leader, the, having the, the biggest kingdom, doing the most for God. But all of that is done away with because he cannot stay focused. Chapter 16 starts out. One day, Samson went to the Philistine town of, of Gaza, and he spent the night with a prostitute. Not going well. Not going well for Samson. Word soon spread that Samson was there, so the men of Gaza gathered together and waited all night at the town gates. They kept quiet during the night, saying to themselves, When the light of morning comes, we will sneak in and kill him. But Samson stayed in bed only until midnight. Then he got up, took hold of the doors of the town gate, including the two posts, and he lifted them up, bar and all. And he put them on his shoulders and carried them all the way to the top of the hill across from Hebron. So Samson was now officially a renegade. And he is walking dangerously close to completely turning his back on God. 
Now he doesn't even give a second thought about going to enemy territory and staying the night with a prostitute that they probably have, for some reason, a little bit of ownership, a feeling of ownership of, right? So if this foreigner comes in and takes one of their prostitutes, they're extra angry, right? And one last time, Samson plays with fire and walks too closely to the line of temptation. So once again, in typical male fashion, he falls for a woman named Delilah. How many men have been destroyed in history because of their love for women? The Philistines go to Delilah and they say, will you give, we will give you some money if you'll just do one thing for us. Find out where Samson gets his strength. So where did Samson get his strength? I'm going to quiz you here. So think about it for a minute. We ask the kids in children's ministry, where does Samson get their strength? And they always get this wrong. So be careful. Where does Samson get his strength? Who said hair? Don't raise your hand. That's wrong. <laughs> it's a bit of a trick question. So we always learn this story as his hair. That's, that's the magical formula that gives him strength. But where does his strength actually come from? God. His hair was just part of the vow he made to the Lord. So while she romances him a little bit, she gets some Philistine soldiers in the room next door. She says, oh, Samson, what gives you your strength? And he says, well, I'll be honest with you. If you'll take seven new bowstrings and you'll tie me up, when I wake up, I will have the strength of a normal man. So when he falls asleep, she takes seven new strings and she ties him up. And she jumps up and says, Samson, the Philistines are coming to get you. And he jumps up and he breaks free. And he knows immediately, okay, she conned me. So she says, she gets mad at him and says, oh, Samson, you have tricked me. You don't really love me. So she asks again, Samson, what gives you your strength? And he says, okay, I'll be honest. If you'll take seven brand new, never before used ropes and tie me up, I will have the strength of a normal man. So that night he falls asleep. She takes seven new ropes, and when she ties them up real good and tight, she jumps up and says, Samson, the Philistines are coming to get you. And he jumps up and bam, breaks those ropes immediately. And, of course, she gets mad at him. You tricked me. <laughs> oh, some people are so deceitful. You tricked me. You don't really love me. You would tell me the answer. So he says, all right, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> He says, if you will use a loom to braid my hair into seven braids, that takes my strength from me, and I become a normal man. Now, remember, a loom is one of those, I had to look it up, honestly. I'm a, I'm a moron. A loom is one of those things that you weave uh, basically cloths and blankets out of, right? Or with. It's a tool. So she takes it. She braids his hair that night. She jumps up. Philistines are waiting in the other room. She jumps up and says, Samson, Samson, Philistines are coming to get you. And he jumps up, and man, just breaks that machine off of his hair. And I'm sure he has long, <laughs> long locks that he just does this with. Anyways, so he has all of his strength. And once again, Samson, it's official. You just don't love me. If you really loved me, you would tell me your secrets. Verse 15, it says, Then Delilah pouted, How can you tell me I love you when you don't share your secrets with me? You've made fun of me three times now, and you still haven't told me what makes you so strong. So, and this is funny. She tormented him with her nagging day after day until he was sick to death of it. Finally, Samson shared his secret with her. My hair has never been cut, he confessed, for I was dedicated to God as a Nazarite from birth. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me and I would become as weak as anyone else. 
Now, anytime I remember reading this part to a group of men in a Bible study or anything like that, they're just like, yeah, everyone has their limits. <laughs> they totally understand the nagging part. So once again, Samson was careless with his vow to God. And I'd be willing to bet that what Samson was thinking was, well, honestly, I broke the other two vows. If I break this one, I probably will still keep my strength. So his vow to the Lord, it was no longer a vow of holiness. It was now just something that was kind of in, in his way of what he really wanted. So he was no longer pursuing holiness in terms of the vow. And so God cho- chose to no longer give Samson his strength. Now, it wasn't because he cut his hair, per se. It was because with this third broken vow, he had officially turned his back from God. So while he was sleeping, Delilah told a man to come in and cut his hair. She screamed, Samson, the Philistines are coming! And as he jumped to his feet, his strength was gone. And the Philistines arrested him, gouged out his eyes, and they chained him up. Verse 23. The Philistine rulers had a great had held a great uh, festival, offering sacrifices and praising their god, Dagon. And they said, Our god has given us victory over our enemy, Samson. And when the people saw him, they praised their god, saying, Our god has delivered our enemy to us. The one who killed so many of us is now in our power. And half drunk by now, the people demanded, Bring out Samson so he can amuse us. So he was brought from the prison to amuse him, and they had him stand between the pillars of the supporting roof. Now, there is not much worse than the shame that fills you when you choose to sin and you're left soaking in the consequences. The despair and the sadness that Samson probably felt uh, was just too much. And I'm sure he was thinking, you know, it was not supposed to be this way. I was set apart as a Nazarite. I was supposed to fulfill God's promises to his people. And now it's too late. Verse 26. Samson said to the young servant, who was leading him by the hand. Place my hands against the pillars that hold up the temple. I want to rest against them. Now the temple was completely filled with people. All the Philistine rulers were there, and there were about 3,000 men and women on the roof who were there watching Samson uh, and being amused, who amused them. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me again. Oh God, please strengthen me just one more time. With one blow, let me pay back the Philistines for the loss of my two eyes. Then Samson put his hands on the two center pillars that held up the temple. Pushing against them with both hands, he prayed, Let me die with the Philistines. And the temple crashed down on the Philistine rulers and all the people. So he killed more people when he died than he had during his entire lifetime. And I'll close with this. Samson died probably thinking that he never got to accomplish what he set out to do. He loved, he loved God, but not quite enough to devote his life uh, to him. And I'm sure his final thoughts were, if I had just taken God more seriously. But you know, Samson is actually listed in Hebrews, is it 11? In what we call the Hall of Faith, which is basically the Faith Hall of Fame of the Bible. He's listed in there. And if you look at his life, you think, how in the world could this guy be listed in the Hall of Faith? What did he really do that was spectacular? He just constantly let the Lord down. And I love the word that he chooses in his final prayer. In verse 28, it says, Then Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me again. Samson was totally aware of God's sovereignty. And he knew, 
Regardless of my actions, God is going to fulfill his promise. He's going he's to accomplish his will. Now, knowing that God is sovereign can lead you down one of two paths. It can lead you down the path of, well, God is sovereign, so I guess that means I can do whatever I want because God's going to do what God's going to do. And when you have that attitude, you have a life like Samson. The other attitude is, all right, God is sovereign. He does what he wants. He accomplishes his will regardless of me. Therefore, I am free to live my life in complete obedience to whatever the Lord has me to do. No fear, no worries, nothing, because God's plan gets accomplished. Do not, do not let us become a Samson. Samson is a wonderful guy in terms of one aspect of the faith, but in terms of living his life for the Lord, he was not. Amen?